and welcome to the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes the not-so-classic genre cinema of yesteryear. It's Monster Kid Radio, and I am your writer, host, producer, Derek M. Cook. Hey, if I met you at Fan uh, Expo, hi, welcome to Monster Kid Radio. If this is your first episode, if this is not your first episode of Monster Kid Radio, welcome back. It's nice to have you back here, where we're going to talk about another classic movie. This is a movie that I'd never seen before, but I saw him talking about it on Facebook, and I reached out to him, his old friend Stephen D. Sullivan. He took a break out of his busy writing day and braved the elements, we'll talk about that here shortly, to join me to talk about a movie from 1965 called Crack in the World. Is it a science fiction movie? Well, you tell me. It's a fun movie, I'll give you that. And we're going to talk about that here with Steve uh, here in a little bit. In fact, you know, I want to get to that pretty early, so I'm not going to waste a lot more time. But I am going to tell you that we do have Mark Matsky's Beta Capsule Review and Kenny's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. Why don't we just dive into all of that right now? I feel my search is nearing an end. At last, the collectible toy oasis. Hey, Henry! Hey, kid! What's it gonna be? Indy or Han? Dr. Tongue's I had that shot, 7129 Northeast Fremont Street, vintage goofiness from years gone by. Sci-fi and fantasy memorabilia. We specialize in things your mother threw away. And some she didn't. Dr. Tongue's Toys. Vampires. Werewolves. Zombies. Yes, these things are real. But fortunately for those of us who can afford him, so is Mark Temple. And he's good. Real good. He's a former FBI agent turned freelancer with the knowledge and skills to eliminate your monster problems. And his rates are negotiable. Monster Hunter for Hire, the first volume of the Supernatural Solutions, the Mark Temple Case Files, is now available in both ebook and paperback. Go to tinyurl.com slash monsterhuntertemple to buy your copy of Derek M. Cook's latest book. Read about Mark Temple, the experienced professional now available to rid you of your supernatural, ghoulish, and monstrous pests. That's tinyurl.com slash monsterhuntertemple. And don't worry, Mark Temple is discreet. Live from the Land of Light in Nebula M78, home of the mighty Ultra Heroes, it's Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review. Return of Ultraman, Episode 3, The Monster Realm of Terror, broadcast April 16, 1971. Mount Kirifuki, nicknamed the Mountain of Evil is the site of numerous fatal accidents. Even so, brave young people head to Kirifuki seeking adventure like the two mountain climbers who reach the summit only to be greeted by a heavy bank of fog and a murderous giant monster. At that very moment, Go and Ueno were patrolling the skies near Mount Kirifuki and Go hears what sounds like the roar of a kaiju. Ueno chalks it up to what he calls monster neurosis. Nevertheless, Go takes a picture of the summit for study. The results are inconclusive, but the captain orders an investigation out of respect for Go. At Kirifuki, Go hears the roar again, but the rest of the team does not, 
resulting in an argument back at MAT headquarters. The disagreement keeps Go preoccupied on his day off, putting a strain on his relationships with Ken and Aki Sakata. Meanwhile, Captain Kato decides to explore Mount Kirifuki on his own in order to settle the issue for MAT and immediately has a run-in with Monster Sadala and is injured by falling rocks. The monster attack team argues again about the captain's whereabouts, and finally, Minami agrees to fly Go back to the mountain. He locates the captain, but things take an unexpected turn when another monster appears. At first, Sadala and Deton engage in battle, but become united by their interest in the tiny orange-suited humans who have invaded their lair. Will Ultraman see fit to intervene? The third episode of Return of Ultraman maintains the momentum established by the two-part series opener, leaning heavily into the human drama of Go's abrupt addition to the monster attack team. It's hardly fun and games. Go is torn and isolated, his new team doesn't trust him, and his old friends are seeing changes they don't necessarily like. But he finds something in the monster realm of terror, a father figure in the gritty Captain Kato. And in a heartbreaking flashback sequence, we learn why that is of crucial importance to the young recruit. Captain Kato was played by Nobuo Tsukamoto, who appeared in the 10th episode of Ultra Q and would find steady work in movies and television, including 41 episodes of 1980's Kamen Rider and 48 episodes of Kamen Rider Super 1. For Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review, this is Mark Matsky reporting. within your lifetime when worlds collide. An astronomer checks and double-checks his horrifying discovery. A distant star racing through space toward an inevitable collision with this planet. Nothing is going to happen. When worlds collide, you'll see the most amazing, awe-inspiring scenes ever put on film. The forces of nature unleashed in all their terrifying force. Tremendous tidal waves smashing New York City. The molten fires from the bowels of the earth gushing out to consume our world. One scientist foresaw the day the world ended. There are two forms of life fighting for survival out here in this valley. And only one of them can win. I'll talk to the girls in the morning. The girls? Yes. They should bear children as soon as possible. But being a scientist, he did not consider a human emotion. No one takes my gun. Tony, look out! He did not know about the uninhibited exhibitionism of a striptease dancer. He'd forgotten about the power of love and knew nothing about the vicious force of jealousy. Nothing ever come easy to me. Don't touch me. I can't stand you. Tony, let the little girl go. But more thrilling, more exciting, more mystifying is the monster. The mutation by atomic energy, part man, part beast, salaciously watching women as they bathe, 
a monster such as the eyes of man has never before seen. Killing one by one each of the few living men, hunting out the most beautiful of the remaining women to take as his mate. Hello there, Monstercade Radioheads. This is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. FM never covered today's film, Crack in the World. But it was not because Forey was afraid to cover world-threatening events. Here is a look at films FM covered that involved our entire planet. The first event that FM covered was in 1938, when Orson Welles broadcast War of the Worlds about a Martian invasion of New Jersey. Alas, it was all a show, but so well done it frightened the entire country. FM mentioned this radio show in FM 10 and FM 149. On the evening of the 30th of October 1938, The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells, the elder statesman of science fiction, was dramatized over the radio by a young genius named Orson Welles. So realistic was the presentation by Mr. Wells and the actors and technicians of the Mercury Theater that thousands of Americans were panic-stricken by the broadcasts, which they accepted literally as a report of an invasion of evil creatures from the planet Mars. That same year, we still had problems from them pesky Martians, as reported in FM10. Quick to capitalize on the Wells scare, Universal Studios hastily edited its second Flash Gordon serial, whose locale had been changed from Mongo to Mars, and released it nationally as a full-length feature called Mars Attacks the World. Terror fans of the time saw the world racked by howling hurricanes, shattered by bolts of lightning, drenched by tidal waves, till Flash Gordon and his girlfriend Dale Arden and his scientist companion Dr. Zarkov took off for the Red Planet to locate the cause of the menace and put an end to it. In 1951, the world had a bigger problem than a little crack. We read about it in FM 140. They knew the minute, the hour, and the day the world would come to an end, and humanity would be destroyed. Only an arc of space could save some. A sinister, thrilling whisper stalks the telegraph trails of the world. Two scientists confirm their calculations. Two great planets have jumped their orbits and are racing through space to collide with our world. This means D-Day for the entire Earth, a date with death doom destruction. The League of Last Days is formed. They plot a miraculous escape in which only the fittest will survive. Millions revert to savagery as civilization crumbles. Law and order become a shambles. And then the crash and the end of the world when worlds collide. 1953 saw the Martians invading us again, but this time in living technicolor on the big screen. Here is a bit of how producer George Powell covered that event. The War of the Worlds had been owned by Paramount for 26 years, but no producer had ever tackled it. But by 1951, with the big vogue of films of science fiction nature, it seemed a must. I was stimulated by the problems it posed. Although written 56 years before, in many respects it had withstood the advances of time remarkably well and remained an exciting and visionary story of the future. It offered me my greatest challenge up to that time to figure out how to film the Martian machines, their heat and disintegration rays, and the destruction and chaos they cause when they invade Earth. The day the world ended happened in 1955, 
And we can read about it in Monster World 8 and FM 182. An endless, all-pervading mist hangs low over the scorched countryside deep within a mountain range. The skeletons of the inhabitants of this valley of death, a gnarled radiation-ravaged rabbit, a half-eaten wolf, lie in the fumes of a world which has destroyed itself. This is the Midwest, 1970. This is TD Day, total destruction by nuclear weapons. From this hour forward, the world as we know it no longer exists, and all over the lands and waters of the earth hangs the atomic haze of death. Man has done his best to destroy himself, but there is a force more powerful than man, and in his infinite wisdom, he has spared a few. 1956 saw another worldwide invasion. How Bronson Caves handled it can be seen in FM 42 and Monster World 4. A Venetian of an entirely different sort was imagined for it conquered the world. This tasty number resembled an overgrown cucumber that would never do the rumba because it had no legs. Two horns sprouted from the top of its pointed head. Eyes glowed like flashlights in its deep sunken eye pits. Its teeth were like the tusks of baby elephants. Super intelligent, this lone vanguard of an invasion from Venus takes over the wills of a small group of people, including the community's nearby space satellite installation. It doesn't quite, as the title indicates, conquer the world, but it does give the people it meets up with some uneasy moments. Until Lee Van Cleef, electronics genius who futilely tried to befriend the Venetian, finally brings the creature's life to a fiery end when he blows out his eyes with a blowtorch. On a more positive note, at least judging by the title, we have World Without End, which was discovered in 1956 and mentioned in FM 42 and FM 95. In World Without End, a rocket crew bound for another planet somehow took a detour through the fourth dimension. On the other side of Time's door, they found themselves on a strange planet they couldn't recognize. Mars? Venus? No. Of all places on Earth, or off it, it was Earth, but a different Earth. Earth altered by the passage of much time. Earth of the future. And on that future Earth, horrible versions of men roamed wild. Once men, now monsters. Degenerate, Beastmen descended from the atomically altered remnants of mankind after the last world war. Half-blind hunchbacks, mishappened monstrosities with misplaced eyes, cyclopean horrors. Here we picture one of the frightful mutant animals of Planet 3, our own, in the dark days that may lie ahead. If heads are lost at the wrong time in the wrong places, and we find ourselves involved in World War 3. Our world was challenged once again in 1957. It all started in the Salton Sea and was mentioned in FM 44. The biggest and most ferocious monster ever built in Hollywood. That's how they ballyhooed the monster that challenged the world back in 1957 when, 10 years ago, it was co-billed with the vampire. Chill shocker, they called it. Tim Holt stars as Ogre Killer a marauding, mangling atomic monster crawling up from the depths to terrify and torture, a new kind of terror to numb the nerves, a giant mass of destruction. 
You've seen the others. Now see the greatest. Things were calm for the world till 1966, when Frankenstein conquered it, featured in FM 39 and reprinted in FM 114. Frankenstein versus Baragon. Baragon, the rhinoceros horned reptilian remnant from the age of dinosaurs, a gigantic monster. Frankenstein versus the giant devilfish. Nuff said. These two titles were used to describe the new Japanese American color collaboration, the monster movie three years in preparation and shooting. At least the film will emerge on the screen. Its final name? Frankenstein Conquers the World. How? All horrorism has wondered, could the Frankenstein monster fight a dinosaur or a giant devilfish? Even a baby Brano could squash Frankenstein with one of its huge paws, and a king-sized devilfish could make deviled man out of Frank with one bone-crushing squeeze. Ah, but not if Frankenstein were over 60 feet tall. And in this new thriller, he is. That is all for this week's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. We will have more next time. For MKR, this is Kenny saying adios. The whole world is waiting, for this will decide the fate of civilization, all humanity. Whether we live or die may depend on what happens here. Attention please, four minutes to bomb time. There must be a couple of million people back of us in the shelter of the San Gabriel Hills, waiting. Waiting to find out whether they can go home again. Everywhere, all around the world, people have been driven from their homes. Direct cable communication is being maintained with Washington. But there's no radio at all. Not even with the bombing plane that's coming over. All radio is dead. Which means that these tape recordings I'm making are for the sake of future history. If any, if any. What's this all about? What's everybody running from? It's the end of everything. What do you mean? I'm not arguing theory, General. I'm here to ask you, to beg you, to save your own world. It, 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 the most the fascinating, fascinating mastermind man, man can conceive. A monster that can control all sources of the Earth's power. Able to pull man-made spaceships from their orbits. Making of those it chooses slaves. Of this woman, a willing handmaiden. Of the chief of police, a cold-blooded killer. Well, I've known you for five years. You just killed a man in cold blood. Why? I'll have to place you under protective custody. Peter Graves, the scientist who fought it. Beverly Garland, who believed her love stronger than it. Lee Van Cleef, whose brilliant mind was captured by it. Are you really ready to stop loving me? I'll need you even when no emotion exists. For a few dollars, you can, you can hire a woman who'll fit all your fetishes. You'll match your requirements perfectly. Then if you ever get tired of her, you can always run down to the employment agency for another. You'll know terror to freeze your blood. You'll feel the heart-stopping strength of the most fearful monster ever known. You think you're going to make a slave of the world? 
I'll see you in hell first. It conquered the world. starts three miles below the surface as world-famous scientists, leaders of state, generals of the armies prepare to challenge the infinite. We have within our grasp the limitless, clean heat of the inner earth. We can transform all the continents and make a life of plenty for all mankind for the foreseeable future. They knew that only a missile with an atomic warhead could crack the Earth's impenetrable inner core. Would it mean the end of the world or the beginning of a new life for all mankind? under the Earth's surface, a man, his wife, and the man she once loved, living life as if this could be their last. Crack in the world as Project Inner Space upsets the delicate balance of the Earth's core, rips our planet in two, bringing disaster in its wake, destruction, irrational terror, and unbelievable courage. What if the crack keeps going right around the world? What happens then? Where the landmass is split, the oceans will be sucked in and the colossal pressure generated by the steam will rip the earth apart and destroy it. It, it isn't possible. It's insane. Is there anything that we can do? Pray. Daring scientists descend into a thousand degree inferno with a live H-bomb in their deadly gamble to save the universe. I am Dracula, and I bid you welcome to the podcast devoted to the classic, and sometimes not so classic, genre cinema of yesteryear. And I offer you this warning. Sometimes Derek and his guests get excited, and they may spoil a movie or two. You know how excited monster kids can get sometimes. If Monster Kid Radio spoils a movie for you, do not come whining to me. I cannot stand whines. Let's kick this off in three, two, one. Listeners, I don't know if you just heard one say with her meow there, kind of uh, emphasizing the fact that, yes, I'm recording and she should probably not be speaking because Dad is trying to work here. That's okay. She's adorable. I'll let her get away with it. I don't know if he's as adorable, but I'll let Steve get away with talking during this conversation as well. It's Stephen D. Sullivan back <laughs> on Monster Kid Radio again, talking about a movie that he mentioned on Facebook the other day. And I thought, you know what? I don't know what I'm talking about on MKR this week. Let's get him on to talk about it. But he's got a lot of stuff going on in his world right now, too. <laughs> I want to give him a chance to talk about it. Steve, what is up, man? Well, the first, <laughs> the first thing that's up is the ice storm. So... 
So hopefully we can get through this uh, without too many breakups, but we'll see. The, uh, the other thing, the big thing was I just finished a Kickstarter for Tales of the Blue Kingdoms 1 and 2. That was successful. I'm busy fulfilling those rewards, and I hope to have them out in, oh, the next month or so, and then a general release in June. Plus, Monster Shark continues to be serialized on Kindle Vela, and Atomic Tales continues to be serialized on the Mimoverse podcast every month. So, plus other writing stuff. Okay. <laughs> busy, busy. Where do people go to keep up with you, although I suspect they already know? It's best to probably to go to sdsullivan.com. My main website usually has links to all this good stuff, but hopefully... MKRs has got some links, too. Of course. Of course. Yeah, so we will make sure there's a link in the show notes. Actually, I think he's part of the permalink section, which admittedly is not something I've updated in a long time, but you will find it in the show notes as well over at monsterkidradio.net, where you find everything else you need to know about Monster Kid Radio between episodes. But don't go there right now, because we're busy. You and I, busy. And, I and I don't mean me and Steve, I mean you and I, dear listener, you and, that's you, I'm talking to you. Yeah, 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 you, you the guy who's listening to a podcast when he should be working. We have things to talk about. We have a movie to talk about. What's the movie, Steve? The movie is Crack in the Work, starring Dana Andrews, Jeanette Scott, and Kieran Moore. Right? And it's a science fiction thriller. Not the typical thing that I talk about on Monster Kid Radio. It, it's... When worlds collide and, and that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, it's very worlds colliding. You know, I suppose you could say it's science fiction. I mean, I guess it kind of is, right? So yeah, we'll talk about it on the show. Plus, it gives me a chance to talk about... Well, it can't be... It, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, it's science fiction because it's not completely crazy from the state of science as they knew it in 1965. And you have to remember that 1965, plate tectonics was not, I repeat, not a generally known or completely accepted thing. Right on. You know, yeah, I'll, I'll call it science fiction. I'll say it's sci-fi. It, it does have those elements that uh, do push it over into the, the world of speculation. It's a disaster movie, you know, and those movies do kind of exist in the sci-fi uh, realm. Or if you were to look at like a pie chart of different types of, of genre and narrow it down to the sci-fi pie piece. Yeah, I think disaster flick really kind of fits in there. Although... There is some action stuff that happens in this too, and at the core of it, yeah, <laughs> at the core of it is is uh, trying to drill for endless free energy and resources into the the uh, core of the world in order to to extract those resources and energy, which would seem like a good thing. And uh, Dana Andrews' character is for that, and Kieran Moore represents the catastrophe theory that if you do this, it's going to cause catastrophe. And uh, though Dana managed to get everyone to go along with him, uh, it turns out Kieran was kind of right. So, but it's really exciting as they go there. It's science fiction in the same kind of pseudoscience vein as uh, the... The day the Earth caught fire will burn itself into your memory. Is it fiction or is it fact? What's the mutation of the Earth? Mutation? Well, it's a slight oscillation. On the Earth's axis, caused by the pull of the sun and the moon it's on changed. the equator. You see, there's a slight bulge on the... There's also an item here about axis rotation. There's been 11 degree variation, whatever that may mean. They've shifted the tilt of the Earth. The stupid, crazy, irresponsible bunglers. They've finally done it. 
which has a sky catching fire and that kind of stuff. It's stuff that seemed maybe maybe a little more plausible back in the halcyon days of the 50s and 60s. Yeah, so the movie's from 1965, and I find it really interesting that even back then, they're thinking about alternative energy sources and things along those lines, which, man, you could really play into that in today's media, and I think that's pretty darn cool too. But you mentioned some of the cast... Kieran, 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 K. Moore, whatever. <laughs> I think it's Kieran. Kieran Moore, the Rampion theory, Dr. Ted Rampion. What a rugged, good-looking dude. And this is something that I love about science fiction, science, action, genre films, whatever, of this era, the 50s and the 60s in particular, scientists as hero. I love that. Now, I know once we get into the 70s, things start to shift. And science is not trusted as much. And, well, we know where we are now. But back then, we got the scientist as hero. And I love right. that. And I love Dr. Rampion being the guy who's not just smart enough to know better. Right? He's he's the man with the, the theories named after him. He's the guy who knows what's going to happen. And turns out he's right. Spoiler. Y'all heard the warning anyway. But he's also the man of action. He's the guy that's <laughs> like, hey, we got to drop a bomb in a volcano. I'm going to be the guy to volunteer, to lead the volunteers to go into the volcano to guide the nuclear bomb by hand. I mean, come on. Right. <laughs> and that's I, that's in the, the spirit of the scientists in, uh, at Dr. Sarazawa in Gojira, in that 854, who's like, yeah, I've got this thing to destroy Godzilla, and I don't trust any of you with it. I'm going to do it myself. Right. <laughs> and it's awesome. And you got to love that. Well, one of the things I like about this movie is that Dr. Dana Andrews is Dr. Steven Sorensen. He's kind of a science hero, too. He's out there trying to save the right. world. And he's in the, the tradition of Walter Pigeon from Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, in that he's pushing forward to try to do something really good for humanity. Now, you know, the argument is, is he pushing forward too fast? But until Dr. Uh, Rampion actually comes up with his alternate theory, it seems like no downside for Dr. Sorensen's theory, which is going to get us all free energy as well as, as a huge amount of mineral resources that all we have to do is it's going to come up from the Earth's core and all we have to do is collect it. And that sounds like a good thing. I'm all in, man. And, and Let's course, do it. Jeanette Scott is also a doctor. Yeah. <laughs> and she's and she's married to Dana Andrews and trying to help him out. And it's like a whole science heroes group at odds with each other here. It's fantastic. And we've got kind of a, a romantic triangle, sort of, but not not quite in the way that Dana Andrews' character thinks. Between, you know, the two men on either side of the woman trying to mediate in the middle and she's married to one of them. Right. So it's. It's really kind of cool and interesting. I guess in some ways, maybe it's a cliche, but it never seems that way to me. And I think one of the reasons it doesn't seem that way is that the production values on this movie are pretty darn high. The Blu-ray that I watched it from, I don't know how you watched it, but the Blu-ray that I watched it from is spectacular looking. It looks in very similar in terms of, of the color, the special effects, to something that's stuff that's really good, like George Powell's work on the time machine 
and the, the War of the Worlds and when war, worlds collide. It's not as good as those. But I kept looking at it going, damn, that's that's a nice looking effect there. That's a, that's a really effective looking sequence. They've put that together really well. Uh -huh. And of course it helps that we have good actors in all three of the, the main parts. It, you know, good actors and and some good set work and production design, you can really take something that's, you know, now nowadays people go, oh, this is scientifically completely out of its mind. But as I mentioned earlier, in 1965, plate tectonics were not widely accepted and disseminated to the public as how the world worked. So the idea of just sinking a, a, a probe down into the core of the earth or, or past the, the crust and stuff, it's the mantle, and then having catastrophic effects wasn't, it didn't sound that crazy. No, not at all. And I, oh, I really yeah. enjoyed the heck out of it myself. You asked where I saw it. I watched it on Tubi. It's available for free on Tubi. So I love that channel. Yeah, you can get it there. And sure, with Tubi, there are commercials. But hey, you know, it's free. And the more I use Tubi... What's that? It's uncut, probably, too. Tubi plays uncut movies. Yeah. They put commercials in them, but they're not snipping out pieces of the movies to do that. They're just break the movie, commercials, back to the movie, right where you left off. The more I watch Tubi, the more in love I fall with it. Um, I even applied for a job with them once many months ago. I wonder if they're hiring you now, because I, I need some new work listeners. But anyway... Uh, that would be a good job for you, you know, and I think they're a terrific service. They're really, as you said, that they're, they're probably my favorite free service right now. Uh -huh. they, because even though they have commercials, their commercial placement is generally quite good. The, it, it's not interrupting. It usually waits till the end of the scene. But this isn't a, commer a commercial for Tubi. Funnily, it's funny enough, that, though, you mentioned that. That was the job that I applied for. They were looking for somebody to work on, um, like their ad placement. Oh my God. <laughs> that they should have totally given you that. I, job, you Tara. know, I, I wrote what I thought was the best cover letter of my life. <laughs> Relaying to them the story of how, boy, we're way off topic here. But when I was little, I have very distinct memory of the first time I realized what a commercial break looked like when you weren't watching something on television. Uh, it was at a Christmas party when I was a little kid. Um, it was something that uh, my dad's work, he was with the Air Force, was doing. So it was in a big hangar. My dad and mom were there. All the other families were there. Kids were there. And the kids were off in one area. And we had Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer on TV because somebody had it on videotape. And they, we, they rented it. We watched it. And I remember specifically watching it and becoming very aware of every time it faded to black that's where the commercials go. Now, there were no commercials because it was on videotape. But I, I even relayed that story in the cover letters. Like, look, I care so much about it. It's been part of my life. They didn't hire me. But still. Yeah. <laughs> well, the next time you try that, I have, a, I have a friend, Jean, who is renowned for her ability to take resumes and tweak them so that they get people jobs. Just let me know. Next time something that cool comes up, well, I'll, I'll definitely try to help you well, out. We'll, we'll talk uh, off mic, because that's not <laughs> what listeners are here for. But, uh, <laughs> listeners, if you have any ends with Tubi or any other cool companies you think this cool cat could work for, I, um, I'm i struggling. Eric's a cool cat. I'm, I'm struggling. And he's got a cool cat. He's got a cat so cool I wrote a song for her. 
There you so, go. There you go. Anyway, anyway the, the back to the <laughs> what here. are we talking about? Yeah. So we're talking about a crack of the world. And one of the things that's great about these science techno science fiction movies is you almost always get a scene where they're they explain what they think is going on and what they think is gonna happen. And sometimes that ends up being really clumsy. But in this movie, I feel like they put a lot of a lot of thought into how they were gonna do their demonstration and little science thing. And I think it works really well and it's pretty visually exciting and it involves poking hot hot pokers through glass and then hitting glass with a hammer and stuff. That was great. I don't know about you, but when I first saw this, you know, twelve year old me or whatever was like, Wow, that's cool. That explains it perfectly. Yeah, I mean it it harkens back to Jack Arnold, right? Right. It's it's the Jack Arnold we gotta put a movie lesson in our you know, a science lesson in our movie or movie lesson in our science or something, whatever. Right. You know, and, and, <laughs> you got science in my, in my movie. You got you science got in my movie. Your mommy's movie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which I love. You know, I respond to that so well. So to have that happen was pretty darn cool. Um, and it helps hang the plot together. Yes. And, and the characters, the fact that the characters are are interesting characters, really helps you buy into what they're doing and what they believe and. And fairly early on, again, you've run the spoiler wording. Fairly early on, early on, you find out that Dana Andrews' character is dying from. He has done so much experimentation with radiation and crap that he is dying from that, and thus he wants to make this big breakthrough and give this to humanity before he goes. And his wife, Jeanette Scott, is totally with him on that, but she doesn't know he's dying. She's, you know, the supportive scientist's wife. And he's hiding that from her, and soon he starts to think she's having feelings for Kieran Moore's character because obviously he's hiding all this stuff from her. And that it's weird when you hide stuff from your spouse, your spouse may seem distant from you. Well, there's <laughs> oh, that, and usually it's a reflective of it's a reflection of what's speaking to somebody who has relationship. I don't know. It's a reflection of of you i think more than anything else if you start getting super suspicious right and right and there's that but you know there's history there too that may be kind of awkward because he rampian and the wife uh what was her name uh, uh maggie. maggie so ted rampian and maggie Sorensen, you know karen moore and janet scott their characters did have a relationship at one point they remained friends but they did have a relationship at one point and it's kind of really revealed later in the dialogue, too, that Dr. Swanson at one point may have engineered. I don't know. It might look like he engineered getting Rampion out of the way so he could have Maggie for himself. And then that happened. Right. They were romantic rivals and now they're science rivals. Right. And that, you know, and that's that's kind of a cliche at science fiction movies, but it, it works pretty well here. And Dana Andrews is quite a bit older than Jeanette Scott is, so... There's a, a kind of a May-December romance thing there, too, where it's like, oh, she's really too young for him, and she'd be much better off with Kieran Moore. Though I suspect if we look them up, they're not that far apart yeah, in age. True. I could be wrong. I, didn't, I haven't looked it up. Um, so it's got all all those kind of soapy elements that are that work really well in an end-of-the-world picture or any kind of disaster picture. Well, just you know, where movies we have, in general. It's, it was a... Uh, it felt like real relationships, real people with real concerns, 
you know, and it, it, it adds kind of like an extra level of stakes to the proceedings. And right. I mean, it was, it, right. it was awesome. Yeah. And so you care when these people start being threatened by earthquakes and cracks running around the world and, and a crack, you know, are, is the world going to split in half? Or are they going to figure out a different solution to it? They end up with a, <laughs> a solution that I'm not going to completely spoil it, that, that the scientists and the, and the audience probably be tearing their hair out at the end. But as, as a kid, I thought it was the coolest thing ever. Sure. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's really cool. Never mind that they'd all be dead now because we know if you, if you create these kind of volcanic events, everyone gets flash fried in a lahar or something like that. You know, there's a pyroclastic flow and then everyone is incinerated. And forget that. Just believe that you can stand on the rim of a burning crater and not, not worry about ejecta and all that kind of stuff you know you say that but there was still the attention to detail in some regards with when our scientist hero is guiding a nuclear missile into the mouth of a volcano he's touching things with his gloves that sizzle because it's so right. hot and i i felt the heat man i, I was watching that I was like this is this is really well done and boy the one guy that falls in oh no yeah yeah they lose some characters and when they lose them it's just horrifying Man. And, and one of the things part of the production does design that makes this really work is it's lit re the movie is lit really really well it's lit in such a way that when they're near the hot lava or bad situations you believe it because you're kind of seeing the flames reflecting and and the red heat and stuff like that they've done a great job with that there's a a scene where they're in a Jeep and there's literally a crack of molten lava cutting across the countryside, setting things afire, and the heroes stop in the Jeep and they're staring off screen to where the special effects are. And you know, as a uh, savvy film consumer, that they're not anywhere near what's going on with the special effects. But the lighting on that scene convinces you that they are right there near the precipice of this world shattering event. And it's, I don't know. I, I don't want to oversing its praise. It's a minor sci-fi disaster movie, but I, I kind of think it's a classic because it's handled really well. They take it very seriously. And as you know, if you don't have a lot of money to do a movie, one of the best things you can do is have all your, all your actors play it completely straight i really thought you were about to say right, use right, stock right, footage because there's a good good <laughs> chunk of stock footage in this one too so <laughs> yeah there's some and it's it's hard to tell where they got some of it from or how they repurposed it because it's done very well at least in my opinion the, the stock footage is cleverly repurposed uh -huh. and melds well with stuff you got like oh that's stock footage oh wait there's a crack appearing in the stock footage maybe they shot that or maybe they did some kind of a combination thing. But you have to, when watching these kind of things, you have to remember this is back in the day before computers do. So combining the earth splitting open with stock footage, not as easy as it might be today. There are a few places <laughs> where you can tell the seam, oh, right? The seam. They're, when they're all on the one island away from the volcanic island and nothing breaks the horizon line, <laughs> you know... Right. There's a cut there, and and that's fine, whatever. But the right. explosions, when they weren't stock footage, looked great. 
the uh, the gantry. You know, when the, the first yes. time they drop a bomb into the Earth's core. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, they had two different setups for that. You know, they had, you it, know, the yeah, regular set. It impressive in space age. And, right. And you're kind of believing, yeah, look, look at that. That's a scientific installation. We recognize those from the 1950s and 60s. Right. And NASA's doing that stuff right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was super cool, man. Yeah. You know, and then they, they had two versions of that, one made out of uh, balsa wood. Because when they blow it up, man, they they blow <laughs> it up, and it's great. I always love miniature explosions where you really get a lot of pieces flying. Yeah. And I, that's the kind of the side of a good miniatures photography group and high-speed photo session is when you, you see a lot of pieces and you see a lot of dust, and, and it really looks like, like you've blown up something that's, 20 stories tall rather than 20 inches tall. <laughs> so, you know, spot on. Good good for them. That was good shot really them. well. That was shot really, really well. So huge props. Huge props to the the uh, visual effects there. I guess, I guess it's a visual effects thing. Yeah, that makes sense, right? So, who, yeah, so whoever absolutely. was responsible for that, awesome. Yeah, you know, and I meant to look that up, but uh, with the ice storm and and storms out in your ear, it's like, uh, let's just see if we can get this working tonight. Right. And happily, we managed to cobble it together. We didn't talk at all about the stars, I don't think. Uh, headlining is Dana Andrews. Uh-huh. We actually have two stars that are mentioned in the Rocky Horror Picture Show, show Dana Andrews and Jeanette Scott. I'll take Dana first. What's the first thing you think of when I say Dana Andrews, Derek? Night of the Demon, man. Yeah, Curse of the Demon, Night of the Demon, one of the all-time great horror movies. Heck yeah. And if Heck you yeah. haven't seen that, go see it. What are you waiting for? You're missing out. But see it before you see this. I love this movie, but Curse of the Demon is uh, Curse of the Demon or Night of the Demon, depending upon whether it's in the U.S. or the U.K. is the all-time, an all-time great. I prefer the longer version, which is the U.K. version. But I know people that like the U.S. version just as well, and it's still a very, very good movie. It really is. Even cut down by, like, 10 or 20 minutes. And he was also in Laura, which is another terrific film, uh, if you haven't seen it. And as I remember, has Vincent Price as well. Yep. The, uh, Laura's a great film. But for Monster Kids, it doesn't get better than Curse of the Demon. Jeanette Scott, uh, we all really got hot when we saw Jeanette Scott fight a Triffid that spits poison and kills. So she is one of the characters in Day of the Triffids, as is Kieran Moore. And in fact, as I remember, they're actually even together in Day of the Triffids. I think they're they're the couple that's on the lighthouse in the film, which has a weird film story history to it, too, that I don't know that we want to go in. But the, the short upshot is that they needed more footage for Day of the Triffids. So they created a subplot away from the rest of the plot, and they would cut back and forth to them. I still haven't so seen it. So she's there. What? I've still not seen it. It's it's a kind of a cool movie. It's I read the book last year, and the book is really, really good. And the movie is entertaining. Uh, the science is pretty rubbery. The solution is just wacky. But it's one of those things that it's still fun to watch. And last I knew, there wasn't a really good print of it available on DVD or Blu-ray and it really could use 
a great print on DVD and Blu-ray. So let's hope someone comes out with a, a Day of the Turf that's really worth seeing. Someone like Shout Factory that'll give us a lot of extras and behind the scenes and talk about how it compares to the book and that kind of stuff. So it's fun. I mean, you know, killer plants that wander the countryside. That's always a fun idea, right? Yeah, just one of those things I just never got around to saying. I, I know I need to, and I will at some point. Well, it's, the crazy thing is it was easier to see earlier in my life. Now it's harder to see. I've got a print that I got somewhere, but it's it's like, yeah, uh, wow, that is a very disappointing DVD print <laughs> that I've got. It's one of those, it's widescreen, but it's not anamorphic, so it takes up a tiny little box in the middle of your your huge flat screen TV. It's one of those. So, and the print quality is marginal. Uh, it's kind of like most of the prints of... Um, uh, is it Maneater of Hydra? Okay. Uh, if you know what it, uh, or Maneater of Mandragora, what's I, the name I of that? I know what you're talking uh, about, yeah. Island of the, the one with The, the yeah. other one with the killer plants in it. Yeah. Uh, and Kieran Moore is, he's not only in Triffids, but he's also Dr. Blood and Dr. Blood's Coffin, Definitely. which most of us will remember and recognize. And that's a, a movie that's, so close to a Hammer movie in some ways, but doesn't quite get there for me. So, but it's still an interesting flick, and I'll often watch it just because it's so beautifully produced. So, so we've got some uh, some pretty good monster kid friendly stars in this film. Even if you just want to look at the people and and can't buy the idea that the you could actually shoot an atomic rocket into the Earth and accidentally make it crack in half. Which, you know, I mean, we're living in an age in which we've recently discovered that the, the molten core of the Earth is now reversing itself and rotating in the opposite direction than it was a couple of years ago. And some people are crazy worried about this. And, but science is telling us, I don't know, worry, that happens every 70 years. Like, okay, I guess 70 years ago we didn't really know about it. So, so what was to worry that now we get to worry about science? That we didn't know about that so uh so you know in some sense yeah, people are still worried about the earth's core and we're still worried about alternative energy for that matter just don't show this movie to like elon <laughs> musk oh, he, <laughs> no he doesn't need any ideas no <laughs> no no he, he does not need any more wacky ideas or wacky ways to make money off of us uh or whatever so but it, it's always funny when when there are people that are kind of scientifically well known in our world that that are more more scientific entrepreneurs than they are scientists. In other words, they're better at making money off their ideas than they are of actually coming up with ideas. And how closely that hues to, in some ways, the standard science fictional mad scientist. It's like, I've got this great idea and I'm going to use it to do this awful purpose or, you know, or I'm going to get rich off of it. And who cares if it cracks the world in half? Now, Dana Andrews is not interested in making money. He's interested in people remember, remembering him after he's gone. Right. But right. in the, in, you know, in our world, in the real world, we had definitely have examples where trying to create a legacy is can be really, really dangerous for a lot of people in the world. So don't want to draw too many parallels. Don't want to bum people out and say, oh my God, this is so realistic. Because it's not. It's, 
it's it's about a scientific experiment that might crack the world in half and kill everybody. But, you know, enjoy it for that. Don't, don't worry about it. I, Penny, I love the aesthetic of this, you know, this mid-60s, late-60s sci-fi vibe. It's something, I mean, I, and I've talked about this a lot. I love that aesthetic, right? I love that look, that feel. Uh, even, like, the music feels like something that you could have even heard on, let's say, an episode of Star Trek. I mean, I just, I adore, I adore it. It makes me incredibly happy to hear it. And uh, so to have this movie kind of doing its saying the way that it is, man, it's just so good. I'm loving it so much. Um, the performances right, are it's, really good. The performances are and solid. it's on the era of, of The Outer Limits yeah. and, and The End of the Twilight Zone and and Star Trek and those kind of things. And even things like, you know, the, the original Avengers and those kind of scientific science fiction adjacent series. And yeah, there's something really kind of comforting <laughs> yeah. about it because of that, even though it's about potentially the end of the world. And honestly, this is, I think I said this to you online. It's, it's like a bridge between the 19, 19- 50s science fiction disaster movies like War War of the Worlds and When Worlds Collide and that kind of stuff. And the late 60s and early 70s disaster movies like Towering Inferno and Poseidon Adventure and Earthquake and those kind of things. Uh And and honestly, I like this better. (laughs) Better than the later stuff. Uh, I the Poseidon Adventure is a great movie, and I really like that. But I'd much rather watch this than Towering Inferno, despite all the stars in Towering Inferno or or earthquakes, and again, plenty of stars there. But the human stakes in this work for me much better than a bunch of uh, Hollywood cameos wondering whether you know Fred Astaire and Paul Newman are going to live and die, or whoever it happens to be in the particular, you know. Uh, star-packed disaster movie of the, that just came, you know, like five or, or seven years later after that. This is kind of, in some ways, kind of the last, the last of these science fiction thrillers that we got for a while. I, I, you know, someone will call in and say, yeah, no, you're forgetting this. And maybe I am, but do you see what I'm saying? I do. Yeah. Because, you know, Towering Inferno, Poseidon Adventure, things like that. Sure. Those are great. But you're right. They are, you know, they're star-studded events. The performances in this are great, but never once am I thinking, hey, that's that guy that might have been in that one movie with so-and-so. Sure, Dina Andrews is kind of recognizable, and Jeanette Scott, sure, and Karen Moore, sure. But I never was like, hey, I wonder where C. McQueen is, you know? Right. <laughs> I wonder if Ernest Borgnine's going to get out of this one or not. Right. You know, you, you, the stars are, they're kind of B stars. They're not A-list stars. So you, you can enjoy them just as the characters rather than saying, wow, isn't Ernest Borgnine good as that guy that, that's got the, uh, the he's married the fallen woman, you know, or, or whatever, you know, is this this good rather than, Hey, it's really interesting that Paul Newman's wife is divorcing him and whatever else is going on. It's. Do you know what I'm saying? Uh-huh. It's, it's just nice to have that 
to be able to not look at them as movie stars and just look at them as characters in this movie. That's what I'm saying. And you're right. right. You're, you're absolutely right. And that's you know part of why I really enjoyed coming to this flick and watching this. It's first time viewing for me. I'd never seen it before. Yeah, yeah, you said that. And I'm I'm always excited when people find new movies uh, because of something I've said or because of something you've said on the MPR. And it thrills me, you know, at the time, you know, 15 years or older than you or whatever, when I actually find a new movie through one of these programs like Monster Kid Radio or something like Monster Kid Radio. And it's like, oh my God, I've never seen that. And then I watch it and it's like, hey, this is really cool. I'm so glad I found this. Yeah. And I, I hope that this is one of those films for you that you're like, yeah, I, I like this. I might watch this again. I will watch this again. Oh. It's pretty darn cool. And, you know, part of the reason, yeah, the concept, maybe the science is a little ropey, fine, whatever. But it's the characterizations, man. You got, like I said, it goes back to the scientist as hero. And I love that. You and I have talked about this a lot. You know, we love the uh, Office of Scientific Investigation movies. You know, we love that. Yeah, I was that. just thinking that. You know, the OSI, yeah, the OSI stuff. Crazy. I love it. You know, and you know what you're writing for, you know, Mim, uh, is so that, and that's fantastic. You know, I yeah, love it. yeah, exactly. I, I, Atomic Tales is is science fiction with science heroes in it, and honestly, we need more of that because scientists, a lot of scientists are heroes. You know, I was hearing uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson talk about science. Yeah the other day and talking about trying to make science accessible and science exciting for people. And we need more of that because science is what brought us computers and cell phones and, and all the really cool things that we have in our world, including things like vaccines that are going to protect us from current or future plagues. There's just science is a great thing when properly applied. So let's apply it properly. And of course you also get the scientific warnings from these movies too that well be careful of hubris be careful of overreach and don't drop nuclear bombs and volcanoes right and when one guy is is building a pretty strong case that maybe you shouldn't drop the nuclear bomb nuclear missile into the volcano maybe you shouldn't rush to get it done yeah just don't just because you're you're worried that uh that maybe you're not going to live long enough to see the fruits of your labor if you don't. <laughs> if there's one guy with a dissenting opinion, don't give the big presentation about whether or not your program's going to work when he's out of town. Just, just <laughs> you know. Although, although that really happens. Oh, I know <laughs> it does. I know. And not just in the world of science or whatever. That happens everywhere. And I get it. Right. Um, but at least, and I appreciated this, at least he did give the dissenting opinion. So what I'm referring to is at the beginning of the movie, uh, Sorensen is presenting to all these world powers, all these world governments or, or commissions or whatever, the plan to drop the bomb and get the okay to do this. Because this is an international uh, effort. This isn't just, you know, America coming in and saying, I want that power and they're going to drop a bomb. And that's not what's happening here. It's an international uh, coalition led by some Caucasians who are trying to you know, better the world. <laughs> And they're presenting to a commission made up of many different world uh, representatives. Unfortunately, Rampion is not there when the presentation is given. And Steve already alluded to this about breaking the glass and that sort of thing to really kind of demonstrate what 
the the Rampian theory is. Uh, right. And and I really like actually I one of the things I really admired rewatching this because I hadn't until I watched it I probably had not seen this movie in thirty or more years. It's been a long, long time. But I really admired the fact that Dana Andrews he's making the pitch that to drop a nuclear missile as opposed to just a bomb into this drill hole in order to create uh, uh, basically a tube down below the crust into the magma to harvest infinite numbers of heat and all and metals and all this kind of stuff. And I really admired that he's when he's doing his presentation, he actually gives Kieran Moore, Dr. Rampians, he tells his side of the story too. Yeah, that's what I was getting at. I love that. It, it's he's, it's he's really arranged cool. that he's not there, but he's actually explains his theory and why he thinks it's wrong and why he thinks they should proceed based on that. And he gives it just as much, uh, maybe not as much, but at least in terms of like the visual presentation part of it. He gives he, a pretty fair pitch yeah. for the opponent's point of view. And that was cool. Right, yeah, and by the end of that thing, I'm going, yeah, he's right, let's go. This other guy's a crackpot. <laughs> yeah. And then we meet more a little later on, and, and then we start to think, huh, maybe he's not quite as much of a crackpot, even though, as I said, Dana Andrews, Dr. Uh, Sorensen, gives a very, a pretty fair assessment, or what seems to me a pretty fair assessment of what the opposing point, viewpoint is. Yeah. And that's cool. And that's something you don't, I don't think you see that a lot in, in science fiction movies where they give the opposing viewpoint without just kind of laughing it off as ridiculous. You know, it's like, ha, 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 ha. and this guy thinks the world is flat. Can you believe that? Let's go ahead and do what we're doing. Right. <laughs> but that's not what he does. He actually, at least to my eyes, gives a fairly fair and comprehensive version of what his opponent had said. Exactly. Uh, and I appreciate that. And it makes me enjoy and respect the characters even more. Now, as the movie progresses, Dr. Sorensen starts treating his wife rather poorly and, you know, his obsession is becoming more and more evident as he's getting more and more uh, desperate to make his mark on the world, crack or otherwise, before his he succumbs to whatever it is he's got. I don't think they ever flat out say cancer, but it's not yeah, good. Yeah, but it it seems pretty clear the way they've set it up that yeah. it's some kind of radiation poisoning slash cancer that he's succumbing to. And he's not talking to his wife because, it, weirdly, he kind of doesn't want to worry her because there's nothing she can do about it. And so he just wants to focus on getting his work done. Yeah. Now, to his credit... With, again, and that's one of the things I like about the film, when his work goes wrong, he switches sides. He admits his error, and he starts working with Rampion to fix things. Yep. And that's that's really cool, too, because one of the things we need more in this world is... Accountability. People that are willing yeah. to put a lot of effort into something and then admit that they were wrong about it. Because God knows we have enough people you, you see day to day and on the news that just will never admit that they've done anything wrong at all. And so, again, even though this is a minor science fiction disaster movie, for me it's really refreshing that the scientist 
when presented with proof that his theory was wrong and the other guy's right, stops declaiming his theory and starts working with the other guy to try to fix it. And it happens pretty quick. It's very fast. Now, granted, the results of his error become very apparent very quickly. But there's no, you know, we can't tell anybody about this. There's no, are you sure? There's no second guessing. It's a, oh, he was right. All right, let's look at the map and see what's going to happen next. Oh, okay, so this is what we're going to do to fix it. And they start to try to come up with a solution that is kind of sort of, I don't know if I understood it altogether, but they, they tried to come up with a solution even, so. Right, right. And he works, he being uh, Dr. Sorensen, David Dana Andrews, works just as hard to fix a problem as he was to try to make himself well-known previously. Uh-huh. It's not like he's like, yeah, okay, I'll go along with you. He's... He literally throws himself into that with everything he's got in the same way that he was trying to push the project forward to begin with. Now, it, it sucks for his wife, but he right. even gives up. Well, he's given up everything. He knows his life is coming to an end anyway, so what's he got to lose? But, you know, he's desperate to fix it before he expires. And, you know, the, the human element, sure, probably didn't handle that the best. But, right. but still. I mean, there, there's, like you said, that accountability that, okay, this this happened. And then even at the end of the movie, like at the, near the end, like the last 15, 20 minutes, he's still all science all the time. And they come up with, when they realize what's about to happen, and they suspect that we're about to have a new moon. <laughs> Which was like, what? <laughs> yeah. Spoilers. <laughs> yeah. Now, now it's not, I'm here to fix it. Now it's. Well, I'm going to die anyway, so I'm going to stay inside. I'm going to stay here and monitor it all from the inside and make sure that uh, all of my findings and recordings and witnessing is available to the world at large after the fact. You know, he could have gotten out, and I don't know if he had a chance of survival or not, but I don't think so. They made it pretty clear. But still, that was pretty cool, too, I think. Maybe a little martyr dumb creeping in there, but it still was kind of neat. And it was at that point in the conversation when Steve's house fell into the crack in the world and we lost our connection. Or his power succumbed to the ice storm. That's up to you to decide. But the bottom line is, Steve was no longer part of the conversation. And I probably rambled on for a couple of minutes expecting him to respond without realizing. So I'm just going to cut all that and come back here and sum up by telling you, Crack in the World turned out to be a really neat experience. It was a really cool movie. I really enjoyed it. Really didn't get a chance to talk with Steve about the scientific uh, implications, the gravitational implications of a new moon being born at the end of the movie. That probably would have changed how things work here on Earth, you'd think, at least as far as the tides are concerned, if nothing else. But still, it was a really cool flick. It had an interesting resolution. I adore the scientist's hero trope of these movies. This is one of my favorite character types in these movies. And I talked with, I mentioned earlier, the OSI films with Steve. And I think that actually made this conversation. I don't think we lost connectivity when we were talking about that, but the OSI movies, the magnetic monster, Gog, things like that. I love those films so much. And I can't remember if I've ever talked about them proper here on the show. I'm real tempted to do like a a series of three uh, episodes bordering a theme month, covering those three movies. I'm talking about 
the magnetic monster. Uh, what were the other two? Gog is the third movie in the film trilogy, and it's really a, a loose trilogy. But let me double check the other one real quick. Oh, it's uh, Riders to the Stars, which is actually one I really like too. I like them in descending order. Magnetic Monster, Riders to the Stars, and then Gog. Riders to the Stars was co-directed by Richard Carlson, so it was cool to see him not just be in front of the camera like he is in this film, but also behind the camera as well. It was co-directed by Herbert L. Strzok, who I believe is credited as creating this kind of sort of trilogy along with Ivan Tors, who, if you really want to dig deep, is somebody who worked with Rico Browning to help create Flipper. So this is really cool stuff. Anyway, those three movies are a lot of fun. Maybe... Okay, I know I said I wouldn't do any more theme months other than two that I already planned, but maybe October will do those. October OSI? Now that doesn't make sense because October should be about Monsters Hardcore. I don't know. We'll see. But it's awesome that the Scientist is Hero trope and Dr. Rampion, played by Karen Moore in this, is one of my favorite characters from all of 60s cinema after having watched this movie. Big thanks to Steve for putting up with the weather switching locations halfway through the recording uh he had to go from his office to another room or vice versa use a different computer because skype wasn't playing ball he braved the elements without stepping outside he braved the elements to record this episode and a big thanks to steve please check him out at sdsullivan.com that brings us to the end of this episode of monster kid radio thank you for listening thank you for being here and thank you for checking out MonsterKidRadio.net, which is where you're going to find everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio between episodes or even while you listen. You got links to our Facebook page, our Facebook group, our Twitter, our Discord, our Patreon, our Reddit. We're all over the place. Some places are a little less active than others, but, uh, you know, it doesn't mean you can't check them out and make them more active. Sometimes the only thing missing from something like Discord or Reddit is you. So come on over. Start the conversation. Hang out with us and have fun. Please share the word about Monster Kid Radio. Thank you for retweeting tweets and sharing posts and everything else and getting people involved with what we do here. We appreciate it. I appreciate it. And it just kind of helps us spread the word, you know? MonsterKidRadio.net. Our contact information is over there as well. So please consider sending us a line, dropping us a line. You can email me at MonsterKidRadio at gmail.com or... You can call and leave us a voicemail at 360-524-2484. That's 360-524-2484. What's coming up this upcoming week on Monster Kid Radio? You know, this weekend, Beth and I may finally sit down to record the uh, debrief, the catch-up with her from her experiences at Transworld, which is a big haunted attraction trade show that took place a little bit ago in St. Louis. She went with Vendetta Productions, which is the group that puts together Scaregrounds PDX. She learned a lot. She made a lot of connections. And I really can't wait to just hear from her and have her share those experiences here on the show. We have been dealing with some health issues, so, you know, we've had to push things back a little bit for that. But if I have my say, I'm spending the entire weekend with her. And, you know, at some point I'm going to pull out the recorder and we're going to sit down and record, I hope, about uh, her experiences at Trans World. What's coming up? After that, I'm not sure yet, but stay tuned to MonsterKidRadio.net, or specifically Facebook is where I typically announce these things to be up to date, kept in the, the, the know. Yeah, that makes sense. Kept in the know about what we're doing, all things MKR. Until next week, remember, 
Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 Unported License. My name is Derek M. Cook. Ciao.